Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 127, Karen Morrison, Domestic Homicides Since Giles v. California. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Karen Morrison. Karen is an associate professor of law at Georgia State University, where she teaches evidence and criminal procedure. Her research focuses on how electronic information affects the criminal justice system. Our podcast today features Karen's recent article, The State Courts Don't Have Time for Your Crackpot Antiquarianism, A Decade of Domestic Homicides Since Giles v. California. It was recently published in the Cornell Law Review. In it, Karen examines the real-world impact of Giles v. California. In Giles, the Supreme Court narrowed the forfeiture exception to the Confrontation Clause, requiring that the defendant have a specific intent to prevent a declarant's testimony before actually forfeiting his confrontation right. In the wake of Giles, some commentators worried that this rather narrow definition of forfeiture would hamstring prosecutors, especially in domestic homicide cases. In these domestic homicide cases, the decedent is often the primary or perhaps only source of evidence against the defendant. And by definition, the decedent is no longer available to provide the live testimony that the confrontation clause normally requires. If there's no forfeiture exception to the confrontation clause in these cases, then successful prosecution is going to become rather difficult. Karen shows, though, that courts and prosecutors have essentially found other creative paths around the confrontation bar, effectively eliminating Giles's bite in practice. My conversation with Karen discusses just what courts did in these cases, and more broadly, whether that's a good thing. Karen, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Your article focuses on Giles v. California, which is one in a series of modern cases on the Confrontation Clause that the Supreme Court has decided. To get us up to speed, can you tell us a little bit about Giles? What was at stake? What was the holding? What were the facts in the case? Certainly. So Giles v. California involved a man who shot his girlfriend to death. They had had a violent relationship before that, as is not uncommon. And she had gone to the police to report that he had choked her and told her he would kill her and threatened to kill her. So at trial after her death, the prosecutor under California law was able to introduce her statements to the police under the general common law forfeiture by wrongdoing theory that 
if it can be shown by preponderance of the evidence that the defendant has caused the absence of the witness, the witness's statements can be introduced against them despite their normal confrontation right. So that's what happened. He was convicted. And the case went up to the Supreme Court following Crawford, which had talked about the fact that testimonial hearsay could not be introduced against a criminal defendant. And the court held, this was Justice Scalia, that while forfeiture by wrongdoing was a possible exception to the confrontation requirement, it only worked if it could be shown that the defendant had procured the absence of the witness for the purpose of preventing them from testifying. So, for example, the prosecutor in Giles's case would have had to show that Giles had shot his girlfriend, not just because he was jealous or he was in a rage, but also at least in part because he wanted to prevent her from testifying. And there didn't appear to be any information showing that at all. So her statement should have been kept out, which is why his case was reversed. Now, you disagree with this requirement of the best way to describe it as specific intent in Giles. And you argue quite strongly that it wasn't correctly decided, especially for this domestic violence context in your paper. Why do you feel that it wasn't correctly decided? So I think the reason I feel it wasn't correctly decided is because the rule that they imposed, which let's just say is the same as the hearsay rule, 804b6, which requires a showing of specific intent to prevent the person from testifying. The reason I had such a strong reaction to it is because the only time in practice that there is ever going to be a doubt about why a potential witness is killed is in the domestic homicide case. Generally, forfeiture by wrongdoing exceptions are used in gang cases where somebody murders a witness or other crimes where there have been people who are potentially going to testify against them in that crime, and then they intimidate or threaten or kill that witness, and then they don't appear. And so it's very easy to show that clearly they were trying to prevent witness A from testifying against them in some trial not involving witness A. In the domestic context, it's very different. So one thing is that there's likely to be some testimonial content because most domestic homicides seem to be the culmination of a pattern of violence that just increases and gets worse and worse until eventually the abuser attacks the victim fatally. So what Giles really was doing was that it was imposing a difficult standard to meet only in domestic homicide cases, while saying that it was being extremely even-handed and that it would be absurd to have one confrontation rule for all other cases and one for domestic violence cases. But in fact, that's kind of what they were doing because these are the only cases where this is going to be a problem. Now, one interesting thing you note is that these statements by domestic violence victims are arguably quite reliable. So this idea that the victim would commit suicide and then frame the defendant with murder effectively, you argue is highly improbable. And at the same time, this concern about framing the defendant somehow seems to capture public imagination, or at minimum, the imagination of courts and judges. So tell us a little bit more about the reliability aspect of these kinds of statements? Sure. So I think it all goes back to Justice Cardozo and Shepard v. United States. 
So in that case, which all evidence students will remember, is the case where Zanana Shepard says, Dr. Shepard has poisoned me. And the prosecution tries to bring that in as evidence that it was a dying declaration. He had tried to poison her. That didn't work because she wasn't just about to die, nor did she believe she was. And later they tried to use it just to show that she didn't commit suicide and she was evincing a will to live. Dr. Shepard smartly had put on as a defense that she had killed herself and was trying to frame him. And Justice Cardozo said, it is impossible for the jury to try to distinguish between her saying, Dr. Shepard has poisoned me in order to prove that she didn't intend to kill herself. And Dr. Shepard has poisoned me to show that he had, in fact, poisoned her. Discrimination so subtle as a feat beyond the compass of ordinary minds, he said, something like that. And basically, he said that the jury would be unable to put aside the reverberating clang of these accusatory words. So somehow the fact that this ghost of the dead woman is going to rise up and point an accusatory finger from beyond the grave was just too persuasive. It was too emotional. No jury could possibly put it aside. And that, I believe, has allowed these absurd defenses, which are not uncommon. So there was another case I talked about in the paper of Julie Jensen, who was allegedly murdered by her husband. And he, too, was trying to use as a defense that she had committed suicide and was trying to frame him. I did do as much research as I could to find out how often this happens. And I didn't find any examples. Now, I'm not a psychology researcher. So maybe there's something that's not published out there where there are people who commit suicide and attempt to frame other people. But for the most part, it seems like it is an action that really just belongs in Hollywood. It's just a movie or cheap paperback novel trope rather than something that really happens. The one study I found about what they called aggressive suicide, where the person committing suicide was trying to hurt the people around them, really just had to do with people going to their loved one's place of work and then shooting themselves in the head. So not pretending to be murdered by that person, but simply to make them feel as bad as possible about the fact that they were killing themselves. So interesting how these narratives often speak to us. I suppose just thinking about it, that one could imagine that this would be some kind of diabolical thing where you are very unhappy with your domestic partner and you you end up killing yourself, but then you want to take them down with you. So you do something like this. On the other hand, I can totally see your point, which is, boy, that seems like a highly improbable course of events. And so in many ways, these statements are likely to be highly reliable, even though there may be the off chance that they're used in a framing kind of way. Let me move a little bit beyond that to what happened in the wake of Giles. So regardless of what any of us might think about the holding in the case itself, the usual response is that, well, the Supreme Court makes the rules. But what you show in your article is that Giles's effect in the lower courts was considerably less detrimental in these domestic violence prosecutions than critics initially thought. So what happened with the doctrine when it went back to the lower courts? Well, I think that is interesting. So obviously, when Giles came out, a lot of critics of Giles were very concerned that this would kind of put an end to prosecutors being able to use a dead victim's 
testimonial statements. But what was interesting is that a lot of the courts just found ways of not having to face the specific intent requirement of Giles, which is so difficult to do. So the vast majority of the cases, I found about 114 cases where there was a victim who had made previous statements about being afraid of the defendant or about the defendant having attacked them previously and then was murdered. And those statements were attempted to be introduced. So in the 10 years since Giles had been decided, I found approximately 114 cases. So the majority of them simply decided that these statements were not testimonial. Therefore, they were not amenable to a confrontation analysis. If the statement is non-testimonial, the confrontation clause doesn't apply. And so those things can be introduced. Now, a lot of people, so it's not always women who are the victims, but the overwhelming majority are women. So a lot of the time, victims-to-be talk to their friends, their manicurist, their sister, their family. And in all those cases, those are not testimonial, so all of those were introduced. There were even a couple of cases where courts seemed to stretch the meaning of testimonial, even finding certain statements made to the police or to lawyers not to be testimonial because they were looking at them in a broader sense, like these statements were made because she feared for her life, so it was an emergency or something like that. Many of the other cases where they really couldn't avoid the fact, or they at least went with what I believe was the intention of the Supreme Court in finding most statements made to law enforcement or court personnel to be testimonial, a lot of them found the introduction of these statements to be harmless error. So even if they found that there was no indication that there was a desire to keep the witness from testifying as a witness, they were able to simply say, well, there's so much other evidence against the person, it doesn't matter. And then the other interesting thing they did was that they found a number of situations in which they could infer that part of the reason for the murder was to prevent the victim from testifying against them, either if there was a court case pending. It did not have to be a criminal case. A number of courts used the fact that there were divorce proceedings or child custody hearings coming up to mean that the defendant had murdered the victim in order for her not to testify at these hearings. Some of the courts even thought that the fact that litigation was reasonably foreseeable would be enough. So some unhappily married couples who would be likely to go to court in a divorce proceeding the courts found that a woman murdered under those circumstances could have her statements introduced, even if they were testimonial, because it was reasonably foreseeable that they would go to court and that the husband would not want her to be testifying against him. So they basically did everything possible not to have to apply Giles as it appeared to have been written. Super interesting point about the harmless error. In fact, the harmless error idea flies in the face of Cardozo's argument, which is that the voice from the grave makes itself impossible to ignore. So it's kind of interesting that the courts really bent over backwards trying to allow this evidence in. Do you have any concerns that what you saw might not have been entirely representative? So what I'm worrying about here are the cases that we don't see in the published literature. So for example, places where say the trial court did exclude the victim statements on confrontation grounds, you're likely going to get an acquittal there, perhaps, and you're not going to see that case on appeal. And it also doesn't account for things like charging decisions, where 
prosecutors don't even bother to take the defendant to trial because they're going to assume that that evidence is going to be inadmissible. I think you're right. And there's definitely the concern that these were only the cases where a defendant was found guilty in the first place so that there was basically a paper trail. The only thing I was able to find to put my own mind somewhat at rest, that there weren't a whole world of acquittals following exclusion of these statements, was just the fact that there are very few acquittals in murder cases. And if there are, they get a lot of publicity. So I found a number of news articles talking about acquittals. None of them were in the domestic context. And lawyers in the district would say things like, we haven't had a murder acquittal in 25 years. So it's all anecdotal, but I think it does imply or certainly suggest that there are not a massive number of acquittals in these cases. As for the charging differences, that's possible. Again, usually if someone is dead, it's unlikely not to be some kind of homicide. Now, obviously, there might be a number of cases where people plead to manslaughter, and we never get to the question of whether these statements by the victim come in or not. But I mean, you're right. I cannot stand here and say this is the universe of cases in which the state courts have considered Giles. But I do believe that this is probably a large majority of them. I want to go back to your main thesis. So suppose courts are, in fact, finding other ways to admit this testimony. What do you think is going on here? Is this basically a form of civil disobedience that they really don't like Giles and they're going to find ways around it? Are they being practical and effectively ignoring Giles or that attorneys are finding ways around it, which are legitimate? What's what's going on? My guess is that in a lot of these cases, the judges react emotionally to some extent. And there's a certain sense that it's just not fair, potentially. At least I feel that way. And it could be that a number of the people involved in these cases on the ground who get the full picture of how violent and frightening these cases are just feel like, so it's not enough that this woman gets burned to death. She doesn't even get to introduce what she had to say previously against the guy. And it just doesn't seem fair that they should be both dead and silenced. And so I'm wondering if, and here I'm completely speculating. So take this with a nice barrel of salt. I just wonder if subconsciously the judges are like, this just doesn't seem like justice. Like, why shouldn't this come in? Maybe I'm just project. I probably am just projecting. But I sort of feel like it's all very well for the Supreme Court to look at the case years later in a very dry format. And it's a very different thing for the lawyers and the judge when they're looking at crime scene photographs. They've got crying relatives. They've. I think Giles is just not intuitive. So let me push you a little bit on this broader theoretical or structural idea here. So jurisprudentially speaking, do you think that the pushback is appropriate from the lower courts? So effectively, yes, we have this hierarchy where the Supreme Court hands down these broad precedents, but the lower courts can react and work within those bounds and try to press on the limits of those constraints might be a healthy balance between the lower courts and the Supreme Court on these kinds of issues. 
Well, I mean, it's like anything, whenever discretion is involved. So to some extent, I am talking about a certain amount of discretion on the part of the courts that they're sort of like, well, we don't think this is a Giles kind of case because it's not testimonial or this was a dying declaration or something. But obviously the dark side of that is that it's not always used in society improving ways. There could be judges that ignore the Supreme Court for racial or sexist or xenophobic reasons, and that that is bad. Um, I do think, though, that there is a disconnect between the Supreme Court that seems kind of divorced from what would be called ordinary life, that the state courts in particular, particular criminal courts, see all too much of. So I think one is just tempted to say the Supreme Court just doesn't get it. That's why I chose a title that sounded so dismissive, that the state courts don't have time for your crackpot antiquarianism. The state courts are kind of like, we're dealing with real people in real situations. We're trying to do justice or, you know, have these trials happen. And we don't care about Blackstone and all this other stuff. Like, we've got a job to do. Final question for you. What's next for you? Where does your research go from here? Well, my research has taken a bit of a turn towards more women's issues, shall we say. So right now, I'm curious about the fact that the common law seems to be making a return in terms of coverture. So coverture used to be the legal doctrine that would dictate that when a white woman of property got married, her legal existence would be suspended during the time of the marriage and she wasn't able to contract or be sued or have her own money or dispose of her own property. And I think what we're seeing now is a fetal coverture thing where the legal existence of women, at least in states which are outlawing abortion in such drastic ways, is suspended during the time of their pregnancy. And I think that is bringing us back to a very sort of troubling legal era. I've taken the the domestic violence victims and I've followed them into a larger arena dealing with women in general. Well, Karen, thanks for your thoughts on the aftermath of Giles and for exploring some of this slippage between Supreme Court precedent and the everyday rough and tumble practice in trial courts. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I think that sometimes we forget that while the Supreme Court is formally the last word, practically speaking, that's not necessarily the case. Trial courts have the ability to evade Supreme Court doctrine in a variety of different ways to achieve practical goals without directly challenging the Supreme Court's authority. Karen's work arguably shows this phenomenon at play with the Confrontation Clause in the domestic violence context. Courts face some rather extraordinarily probative evidence, and it seems unfair, unjust, and sometimes nonsensical to exclude it in light of what is sometimes perceived as overly formalistic confrontation jurisprudence. The result is a sort of bending of the rules, as courts nominally adhere to the letter of the law, but not its spirit. On the other hand, as Karen recognizes, this kind of behavior has its dangers. Not only does it harm values such as the rule of law, but what seems like a just outcome to you in one context 
may not be so to someone else, and vice versa. In a current paper, which we entitle precisely Bending the Rules of Evidence, Alex Nunn, Julia Simon Kerr, and I suggest that a similar phenomenon goes on with overly restrictive provisions in the federal rules of evidence. The challenge is to create jurisprudential space so that trial judges who work on the ground with real people and real trials, so that these trial judges can make evidentiary innovations. But at the same time, this space has to be transparent enough and reviewable enough so that we preserve the predictability and the equity that we've come to expect from a system of established evidentiary rules. Finally, and on a slightly different note, I would be remiss not to mention that Karen, some years ago, created an excellent interactive video of the Sir Walter Raleigh trial that can be used as a review of hearsay and the confrontation clause in evidence classes. It's cinematically beautiful, and my students have long said that they enjoyed using it. So if you're looking for something like this to add to your evidence course, you might want to reach out to Karen. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. Thanks also to Harvard Law School, which is hosting me for the fall semester. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.